0: Hey everyone, Eric Trexler here from the Stronger by Science podcast. We are still on break and still enjoying very contentious negotiations with the Stronger by Science podcast co-host union. While we prepare to return for a new season, we wanted to re-air an old episode to give you something to listen to and also to remind everyone that we still exist. Today, we are re-airing a very timely episode. As we approach the middle of March, A lot of folks who set weight loss goals in January are probably starting to run into a little bit of friction. So we're re-airing episode 77, which discusses how to troubleshoot weight loss plateaus and get your weight loss back on track when challenges arise. We hope you enjoy the episode and we'll see you soon when our next season gets up and running. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the host of the show, but today I do have a very special, very temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How's your day going so far?
1: Uh, It's going well. How's yours?
0: Good. I I, I took a little hike this morning to a creek, did some meditation, uh, enjoying this weather. It's going to get cold soon, so I figured we had a nice, warm, sunny day. Uh, definitely took advantage of it. Had a great morning. Is it really going to get cold again? It is. It's going to be in the thirties pretty soon here. Uh, Fahrenheit.
1: Like as a high?
0: No, no, no. As a low. But, uh, but yeah. So anyway, we got a great show today. Uh, that's not all about our local weather, uh, fortunately. Uh, but before we get into the show, uh, if you enjoy the show and you want to support it, there are many ways to do it. You can like rate and subscribe wherever you happen to access the show. Uh, You could go to BulkSupplements.com and use our discount code, SBSPOD. That'll get you a 5% discount off of your entire order. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which Greg and I are co-authors of, along with Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms. Or you could check out Macrofactor. That is our diet app. It does have a free trial. And if you love it, and we think you will, then you can subscribe. All right, uh, road to the stage. How's it going, Greg? Uh,
1: It's going well. Sorry, I just need to regather my thoughts. I was just checking the the 10-day weather forecast. Yeah, it's Um, not good. (laughs) God damn it. Uh, Yeah, so um, road to the stage, going well. Um, This past week, actually, uh, I was on vacation. Um, My wife and I were down in Bradenton, Florida, not for any particular reason, just to take a little break. Uh, and the reason the, the weather is germ- is germane to this conversation is uh, the the biggest reason we went is, eh, you know, it's getting towards the end of the cold season and we just wanted some warm weather. Um, and we were anticipating, like, yeah, you know, middle of March, that tends to be when things start warming up in North Carolina. We were basically hoping that we could get Uh, an extra early week of spring and then just basically carry that on through. So much to my dismay, I I see 50s in the future, uh, like Thursday and Sunday here. But
0: yeah, you you actually left during a bit of a heat wave. And then now that you're home, it's like back to normal.
1: (sighs) Oh, well, that's fine. Anyways, so uh, yeah, on vacation this past week. And with that in mind, One of the things that I wanted to do uh, on vacation was basically to uh, not be that concerned about the road to the stage, not intentionally try to be in a calorie deficit, not track anything, like just basically chill for the week um, and just listen to my hunger and satiety cues with the explicit goal of just trying to maintain weight and not put on like 10 pounds in a week as I occasionally do on vacation. And uh, yeah, the, that on that front, it was a complete un, unmitigated success. Uh, came back about a pound heavier than when I left. And I think that's purely down to the fact that traveling makes me constipated. So probably uh, TMI. No, that's to... good. good to know for us. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> for the listeners, maybe TMI. But anyway, uh, that, that bit went very well. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, it's a small thing, but I'm actually quite proud of it. Um, just because I, I do think that that is a positive reflection of the skills that I've built over this past year and an improved ability to listen to my, uh, typically very faint, uh, regulatory cues as far as satiety goes. Um, so yeah, uh, feel good about it.
0: No, that's awesome. It's, um very overlooked commonly in the dieting space but being able to kind of reconnect with some of those cues and let those take over um you know that's a kind of a skill that we can uh we can practice and develop but we can also kind of fall out of that that regulated zone you know so that's a really a really positive step there for sure Um, how is
1: the road to athens
0: Yeah. The road to Athens is good. So a while back I mentioned I had a popliteus injury, which is, uh, the most meaningless muscle in the human body. Uh, it is a (laughs) complete joke, but when it hurts, it's not fun, man. It's not fun to run with that. So my popliteus is feeling a lot better. And, you know, with, with the, the weather, the last several days, it's been a really nice stretch of, of long runs, which is something I've been missing. So, uh, because my popliteus is way better, I'm back on the trails, which means I'm more likely to get out there on a warm, sunny day and really just go for it. Um, so right now I've got a really nice uh, balance where some of my runs are like three miles and they're very brisk. Like I try to really push the pace and build up my tolerance for higher intensity efforts. Uh, and I mix in some of the longer trail runs, which tend to be like six to 10 miles. And I'm getting to the point now, like I can give you a really nice eight miles in well under an hour, keep a really steady clip the whole time. And as long as I don't get bored, I'm good to go. So that, that's why the trail running comes into play. It's so much more enjoyable than just running on the street, um, you know, I was like back in the day I was hoping to do a specific marathon that's actually this month. Um once I ran into those injuries, I was like, I don't know if that's going to work. And then they actually changed the venue of the marathon from a perfect venue to an absolutely terrible venue. It's it's like through the city and it is literally in the mountains <laughs> and stuff so, like the city is like straight inclines and declines the whole way. So anyway, I'm not doing that marathon. The injury messed up my training uh, trajectory and the venue change is awful. Um, But I'm I'm still keeping an eye out. I'll probably do something either in the fall or next spring, uh, which is not unusual for me. So like even with like bodybuilding contest prep, I usually just start prepping. And then somewhere along the way, I identify a show, usually pretty late in the process. So I'm taking the same approach here where I'm definitely still training training fully intend to do a formal marathon. Like I'm not just going to go off on my own and say, yeah, I ran 26 miles. Like I do want to enter one and do it uh, and kind of make it official and enjoy that, that kind of culmination of the training with a, a specific event. Um, but yeah, so I haven't picked one yet, but that'll be coming. Um, but yeah, things are going well. Uh, what about feats of strength this week? What do we got?
1: Yeah. So I, I've got two, um, If you follow strength sports at all, you are probably aware that the Arnold Classic uh, wrapped up recently, Uh, wrapped up yesterday at the time of recording, wrapped up I think four days ago at the time that this episode will be airing. Uh, But either way, that, that happened pretty recently. So I have one feat of strength from the Arnold Classic, and I have one feat of strength from the crazy world of Multiply Equipped Bench Press. Uh, so wh- which one do you want to start with?
0: Let's start with the Arnold.
1: All right. So uh, if if, so- if you're listening to this and you follow strongman or strength sports at all, uh, you may have heard of the Denny Stones. They are a legendary pair of just two very big stones from Scotland. Um, and they, in, in total, weigh 732 pounds, I believe. Uh, or what's that like 332, 333 kilos, give or take. Um, and so lifting the Denny stones is something that, uh, you know, a lot of people have done it now, but it's, um, historically been viewed as a a great test of strength for people who respect like global odd lifting culture, like getting away from just barbells and classical implements. Um, so very, very cool uh just big rocks that you can pick up. Uh so anyway, um at the Arnold this past weekend, a lightweight uh a lightweight female strong woman named Chloe Brennan lifted the Denny stones. And uh she is I- I'm sure the lightest woman ever to do it. She might be the the lightest person ever to lift the denny stones. One thing to note about them is they're notoriously hard to hold on to because they have ring handles instead of just kind of like flat handles. Um, so you can't get as good of a grip on it. Like, you know, basically the, the handle is going to be sitting really deep on your ring and middle finger. And it's, it's hard to get your, your pinky finger into it as much, which doesn't matter quite as much. And also your, your pointer finger, which matters quite a bit more. Um, Str- and, strength aside that just sounds horribly uncomfortable oh yeah yeah so it's also just gonna cut into your hands feel like shit uh so they're hard to hold on to and they're also hard to pick up and balance because they're two different sizes uh you know it's they're not well calibrated uh implements i think one of them is a little over 400 pounds and the other one is a little under 300 pounds um and so you also have to lift it with a really awkward uh stature so the really, really big strongmen sometimes compete on like Denny Stone carries where they pick it up as if you're doing farmer's walks, like one in each hand, kind of off balance, but, you know, just one on each side of your body. But for just a classic Denny Stone lift, you do it like, uh, oh, what do you what do you call it?
0: Like a Jefferson deadlift?
1: Yeah, a Jefferson deadlift. That's, that's exactly what I was trying to come up with. Um, so yeah, you're like, you have one in front of you, one behind you. And so like your torso is rotated, uh, and just like the stones are big. So it's not like you're grabbing right in front of your torso and right behind your torso. Like one's going to be in front of you a a decent little bit. The other handle is going to be behind you a decent little bit. So it's very awkward and very heavy and very hard to hold on to. So like, even though it's like a partial deadlift range of motion, um, like a lot of people, I, I, I've never tried to lift the Denny stones. I would love to, but like talking to people who have tried, um, you know, it, it's, it's in no way analogous to like a 700 pound, uh, block pull or rack pull. It, it's just, it's very heavy and also very awkward. So anyway, um, Chloe Brennan took them down. Uh, I, I, th- I think she might just be like the third or fourth woman ever to do it. And like I said, doing it at 140 pounds, absolutely ridiculous. Um, And also if you go and watch the video, it's very cool because she didn't get it on her first attempt. Like she was trying to hook grip it and she had tape on her thumbs for hook grip. Um, But in in addition to being rings on the stones, it's also not knurled the way a barbell would be. Um, And so I think like the thumb tape for hook grip helps your thumbs like bite into knurling a little bit better. So she tries it hook grip with thumb tape. Uh, I I think one of them breaks the ground. The other one doesn't. So she takes the thumb tape off, chalks up, tries again, uh, still doesn't quite get it. And like, you know, if you've ever pulled a max deadlift, you know that (laughs) if if you have an attempt where you give it everything you got, maybe the bar breaks the ground a little bit, but doesn't go up. If you try that pull again 30 seconds later, you're not going to get it. Like, that's that's not how max yeah. deadlifts are accomplished. Uh, but, you know, like, it's a competition. I'm pretty sure she's on the clock. She's got to do it. She just says, like, fuck it. I'm taking one more pull at it. And uh, and she did it. So so was this at the Arnold?
0: Yeah. It, the, the Stones, there's only two, right? So, like, did they have to bring them in from Scotland?
1: I, I'm pretty sure she did this on the actual denny stones and not a replica yeah yeah so i'm pretty sure they shipped them in wow that's pretty cool yeah
0: yeah the uh the jefferson deadlift is is one of my favorite lifts because it is conditionally impressive and what Mm -hmm. i mean by that is if you go to a commercial gym and you do jefferson deadlifts and you don't visibly look very strong people will assume you are a complete dumbass. Yeah. But if you do look visually quite strong, people will be like, wow, that is very advanced. Like yeah. it either makes you look stupid or very cool just depending on people's assumptions about your strength level.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th- that was one of the feats of strength. Very impressive lift. Very cool video. You should go check it out. Uh, the other one. Um, so, okay, here's here's a little pop quiz for you, Eric. Okay, so, powerlifting has been around for a while. I think we can all agree. Mm-hmm. If someone were to, I don't know, break a bench press record, how much? How much do you think they would break it by? Uh, and, and we'll we'll categorize this: less than fifty pounds, between uh, fifty pounds and hundred pounds, or by more than a hundred pounds. Just how? By what increments do you think these records should be advancing by? Certainly, less than fifty. Yeah, so you think that because you're a fucking idiot?
0: Well, no, uh, I think that because Lasha <laughs> breaks a world record every three
1: weeks, and no. it's always by the next increment. No, yeah, I mean that's that's what everyone would yeah. think. Um, but on, I, I think like two episodes, two or three episodes ago, we talked about uh, the most recent um, unlimited gear bench press record set by uh, you know longtime powerlifter uh, Bill Gillespie. Real classic in the sport, sets the bench press record, rides off into the sunset. Very cool story. That was 1,129 pounds. And uh, his record was recently broken by Jimmy Cobb, uh, who was the previous bench press world record holder before Bill Gillespie took the record. Uh, And he benched 1,320 pounds or... uh, 599 kilos. I don't think he quite did the six hundred. I, I think it was it was on pound plates. Um but yeah, thirteen hundred and twenty. So basically improving the record by two hundred pounds, very, very close to it. Um just uh, an outrageously impressive lift. So a couple of things about this is one, um I think he's going to take this record much higher. So for for people who have never Either dabbled in or just like spectated equipped lifting which that's not an assumption I can make anymore back back when I got into powerlifting like multiply was the big sport in America with raw being kind of uh, a lesser cousin that is very much flipped there aren't that many people doing like unlimited gear powerlifting anymore uh, and certainly not as many people spectating it Um, so anyway just a little bit about lifting gear there are three broad categories there's single ply, uh there's multiply, and then there's unlimited and the unlimited category was made specifically for like the new types of bent shirts. So with a single ply shirt, basically like you're gonna have like denim or canvas or just like some sort of very slightly elastic but stiff material that um you know helps resist the bar as it's going down and assists you going back up. With Multiply, instead of just one layer of that material, you can have as many as you want. And then with Unlimited, uh, there's a new style of bench press, uh, of bench shirt on the market, which is like truly elastic, um, like rubberized equipment that uh, assists, as I understand it, quite a bit more than even like the old Multiply shirts did. And so Jimmy Cobb had the prior... um, like unlimited tier bench press world record at 1120 before Bill Gillespie broke it with 1129, uh, and Bill Gillespie used one of the like very cool new rubberized shirts. Jimmy Cobb's old record was single ply, so he he had previously benched more single ply than anyone else had ever benched, multi ply or with the new just crazy bench shirts. Uh, so I think this was his first meet that he did with one of the crazy rubberized bench shirts, and took his meet PR from eleven twenty to thirteen twenty in a single meet. Um, and there there's footage of him on his Instagram account taking uh over fourteen hundred pounds to a one board makes it look easy. Whoa! So we might be about to see something just insane out of him once he gets more practice uh, with this type of equipment. Uh, also, you know, we aren't always the most congratulatory of lifting technique when it comes to, I wouldn't even say technique, just just like standards when it comes to multiply or unlimited lifting. Like oftentimes the squats are of questionable depth. Maybe the deadlifts don't look totally locked out. Maybe the bench presses don't look totally locked out or look like they have a clean pause or whatever. Um, but it... I I wouldn't even say as far as equip lifting goes, just as far as lifting goes, this is a clean bench press, um, lowers it under control, very clear pause, very clear lockout. Um, like I, I think this is the most just legit looking, uh, bench press world record in, in terms of like adherence to the rule book, which isn't always adhered to. Uh, I, I, this is, this is one of the best looking bench press world records in a long, long time. um, And, God, I had one more thing that I was going to say about it.
0: Well, in the meantime, uh, I don't want to step on your toes here, but I do want to protect you from the vitriol and hate mail. You mentioned 1320 and 599 kilograms, but the link says 1302 and five ninety. Is is the yeah, link that,
1: incorrect? Yeah the the link is incorrect. Oh wow. Yeah. So um, that that's
0: impressive because if it was only thirteen oh two, I wouldn't really care. <laughs> but thirteen twenty is is something.
1: Yes. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember the other thing I wanted to add. This is the heaviest lift in powerlifting history. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh. The. It's not uh, supposed to be. I I I mean the biggest deadlift is clearly below that. Yeah. Uh, and the biggest squat. I think the biggest squat is either 1,300 right on the nose or 1,305. Um, so, yeah, just just to illustrate how large of an effect powerlifting gear can have. The, I, I think this is the first time the bench press record has been higher than the squat record. Um, but, you know, that day has arrived. And, wow. uh, you know, like, I it should be clear. I think geared lifting is very cool. I think that's a, a minority position among among raw lifters these days um i think it's awesome it's it is a completely different sport you can't compare them apples to apples and if someone like if someone asks you like how much do you bench and you say 800 but it's like an equipped 800 like i think that's a little dishonest because they are thinking you're talking about the type of bench press they're thinking about which is a raw bench press um so yeah you can't compare the sports apples to apples but i think it's very cool just just because of how much weight they're handling um and like from training with equipped lifters like the the crew of guys I trained with when I first got into powerlifting like I was the only raw guy in the crew everyone else lifted equipped and just seeing what it took to get under loads like that crazy um and there was a guy in our crew Joey Smith who was like an 800 plus bencher at 275 and, like, that that was very, very good at the time. And I remember, you know, I remember him loading, like, over a 1,000 on the bar and doing, like, a reverse band two-board press with, like, over a 1,000 pounds. And, you know, just seeing, you know, even though it's a partial range of motion, the bands are helping a little bit, just seeing, like, what that did to him to just hold that much weight in his hands and then just to th- and like the heaviest the heaviest like bench press i felt in my hands with like um uh like two a four board using like really heavy bands as kind of like a bench shirt or uh like a slingshot um which i'll note if you don't want to buy a slingshot but you have access to bands you can just double them over put them around your arms it's literally the exact same thing that's what we all did before uh before those existed um but anyway, so like doing like a high board press with with the bands around my arms, like I felt 600 in my hands before, and that's fucking scary. It's like you can feel one, it just feels like the um like the cartilage in your wrist is being compressed and you can feel your forearms flexing, like your radius and ulna you can you can feel them like voing. Like fl- yeah. Yeah. Um and and I mean, you know, I'm sure six hundred would feel very different if I got into equipped lifting and was handling that type of weight more frequently. But I can't I can't even conceive of what thirteen hundred pounds would feel like in my hands. Yeah. That's that's outrageous to me. So just the fact that not only can he bench it, but just just that he can touch it. Like he can unrack that without his forearm shattering outrageous to me um so yeah new bench press record and who fucking knows might be 1500 in a year uh now that now that jimmy cobb has fully gone to the dark side and has started using the new rubberized bench shirts feel like the sky's the limit who knows what he's going to push the record to that's
0: awesome well you can find both of those videos in the show notes for today's episode um now moving on I have a Coach's Corner segment. I'm going to try to keep this brief because I know you've got a really nice uh, research roundup or research review coming up. Um, But what I wanted to do was a really applied segment that talks a little bit about how to actually troubleshoot metabolic adaptation or I should say apparent metabolic adaptation. So to set this up, I want to start with a problem statement. Okay, so you or maybe your client are struggling with weight loss. And for this segment, I'm just gonna present it from a coach's perspective. So let's say a client comes to you, or like a brand new client who wants to work with you and says, I'd like some help with weight loss, but you really have your work cut out for you because I am stalled and something's just not right here. Uh, So you're talking to this individual and they feel like they're doing all the right things to promote an energy deficit but their weight just is not budging, right? So a very common assumption is to go straight to metabolic adaptation, um, and to kind of assume well the problem here is low resting metabolic rate or maybe low total daily energy expenditure. But you really have to dig deeper. I mean, maybe it is low, but how low is it? And, and you know, how low could it possibly get? And how might we overcome this situation, whether it actually truly is due to low energy expenditure or maybe it's actually due to something else entirely. So you really have to dig in and start exploring this. Um, So one of the first questions that comes up is, oh, should I just have this person get their resting metabolic rate tested? I've had a number of people reach out to me on the internet and say, hey, I was thinking about getting my resting metabolic rate tested should I do that? Um, and I basically always say no. Um, you know, it's knowing your resting metabolic rate in the absence of knowing your total daily energy expenditure for weight loss purposes is not particularly useful. Um, and it's also really hard to get a good measurement outside of a research setting. Um, you know, unless you're going in, and working with people who have been really well trained and using really nice um, indirect calorimetry equipment, a lot of the commercial grade stuff just isn't that good. And it, we're talking about uh, lacking precision and having error to the extent that it's like you might as well just use a formula, you know, in, in many cases. So I don't recommend that. Uh, another question is well, maybe I should just calculate an estimated total daily energy expenditure. Uh, compare that with their daily calorie target, and maybe that alone can tell me how severe this metabolic adaptation truly is. That is still not a perfect approach. Um, The reason being, you know, you can try to calculate estimated energy expenditure based on age, body composition, uh, physical activity, correction factors, things like that. Uh, And it can get you into a general ballpark number. Um, but if a person is it kind of deviates from that estimate that 's not necessarily an indicator that something is going wrong or that they're experiencing metabolic adaptation, as we've talked about previously there's a lot of variation from person to person uh you know you you might be able to calculate someone's predicted total daily energy expenditure. But that's just going to get you within the ballpark. And there are going to be people who, without any metabolic adaptation whatsoever, are far above and far alo- far below that predicted value. Um, so what we need to do here is not just crunch numbers in a formula, not just uh, go get measured at some kind of like commercial gym that offers metabolic rate assessments what we need to do here is what I call an energy audit. And so for this segment, I wanna walk through how I go about doing that because I think it'll be helpful for people who find themselves in this situation, either with their own dieting or working with a potential client. So this segment is gonna be very practical. It's gonna acknowledge some topics we've talked about previously. So obviously it's gonna talk about metabolic adaptation. It's gonna talk about uh, compensating for the calories we burn during exercise. We've gone into the details about the research behind these topics, but we haven't really tied it together into a very applied segment like this. So the general vibe first, when you're gonna conduct an energy audit. And what we're trying to do here is figure out what what truly are the numbers here, the calories in and the calories out. We need to get into the details to figure out, is there really an unusual discrepancy here? Is total daily energy expenditure really way out of the normal range? Uh, The general vibe when you're conducting an energy audit, it's going to be a conversation. It's back and forth, a lot of questions, a lot of follow-up questions to kind of dig into the details. The most important thing is ask the questions, but actually listen. You know, listening is critically important with this because when you're trying to conduct this kind of energy audit working with a client... The only true source of information is going to be their experience, their perspective, and what they're able to relay. So you have to ask questions, and you have to truly listen deeply and intently. You also need to make sure that you're being empathetic and compassionate in the process. So you're aiming to be helpful here. Now, it's very easy to go on this energy audit, and you hear their initial um, problem, and you might be skeptical at first and say, No, 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 you're making a mistake with your tracking, right? So you can start this process from a, a place of skepticism. And it almost seems like you're trying to assign, assign some blame. You know, it's like you're, you're trying to figure out where they messed up. Uh, and of course, we're going to ask a lot of questions uh, that do probe a little bit in terms of accuracy and how well they're tracking. But it's really important to remind yourself before you have this conversation. I'm here to be helpful, not to assign blame. Okay. So uh, sometimes people go into this and they they try to use a tough love approach. And I generally think that's a bad idea. You know, um, I think tough love is a misunderstood concept in coaching in general. I think Uh, in many instances, in most instances, there's a much better way to communicate rather than what most people consider. Like, yeah, I just do tough love and, you know, I'm really hard on my clients, but they're better for it. You know, so like you you could tell someone like, Hey, you know, this is what it takes to achieve your goal. You can either handle it or you can't, that's up to you. You know, you can kind of take that approach that leans on that tough love and say, I'm dropping this truth on you and you're not going to like it. But like you could also do that differently. You could say like listen, your goal it's really ambitious and that's fantastic. Like having ambitious goals is exciting, but you know, we have to operate within the natural constraints of physiology. So I don't think that your goal physique can actually be obtained without the following trade-offs and downsides and then you lay those out and you say let's go through a cost-benefit analysis and determine what body composition level is going to be compatible with your physique-related ambitions, while also being compatible with the way you want to uh, the way you want to live your life and the way that you want to feel throughout the day? So, in both cases, you have delivered uh, a truthful statement that's a little bit inconvenient, but one of them is very helpful and understanding, and the other is not. So, my concern with people who are a coach and they're really proud of their tough love approach. Is that i just think it's usually not the best approach uh and you know there are ways to deliver truthful statements um that you know have less than than or 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 deliver feedback that's not favorable you know there might be areas where you have to say hey we really need to improve on this you can deliver those truths without being abrasive and if you look into some of the research on self-determination theory uh that research would indicate that uh, the abrasive approach uh probably is not doing a lot to support that athlete's success in the long term. So uh I, I do kind I, I find it a little bit amusing that there are a lot of people who are like, you know, they're evidence-based coaches and they're proud of it and, and they tell you all the time I'm evidence based. And they mock people for being out of step with the nutrition literature or the exercise literature, but their actual job is coaching and they are fully out of step with the coaching literature you know like like they are missing an entire field of science that would make them better at it
1: well there there is a more cynical interpretation which, which is so when you say you think tough love isn't a good approach the question you then need to ask yourself is good approach for who um you know and and is is that going to be the optimal approach to um improve the results for that particular client versus is that the optimal approach to improve the profitability of your coaching program? And I think that for uh, some percentage of coaches, I, I don't think people are actually like sitting down and thinking through this, but I think that you maybe notice trends over time where uh, clients who respond well that tough love approach where essentially what you're saying as a coach is like hey here's the decision you need to make uh and that's that's 100 on you and if you make this decision where you are going to do all of the things you need to do to reach your goals without me reminding you or without us having ongoing conversations about this stuff uh you know you'll probably get good results and you're going to be a very low effort client for me uh, versus, you know, a a more collaborative approach where there's more conversations that take place, um, you know, more little trade-offs you talk about, uh, on a more frequent basis that may improve the odds on a per client basis of client success, but it's also increasing the weekly workload per client. And so I think, I think some percentage of coaches, uh, maybe subconsciously realize that that tough love approach uh, increases the size of a roster that they can maintain um, by, by weeding out people who are like truly driven and want to have success, but may take a little bit more effort for the coach to help them get there. Um, So yeah, I mean, I I agree with your statement that tough love may not be the best approach if, Maximizing per client odds of success is the endpoint you care about the most. Yeah. But I don't necessarily know that that is a true assumption for everyone all the time.
0: Well, that's because you didn't take the road to enlightenment. You know, <laughs> you have all that cynicism <laughs> built up. And yeah, I, yeah you're definitely correct, uh, unfortunately. Um, but w- one day I will do a segment on self determination theory and get more into the details. But when you look into that research, th- this whole tough love approach, um, usually you you'll see things dichotomized sometimes as autonomy supporting behaviors of a coach versus controlling behaviors of a coach. Autonomy supporting behaviors are fantastic. They empower the client and and really favorably impact a number of positive psychological outcomes. Controlling behaviors really chip away at the root of self determination theory and leave clients in a position where their psychological needs are not being met and their long term success is far less likely. Um, so, tough love kind of checks quite a few of the boxes for these controlling behaviors that, based on literally like all of the psychology research and the coaching research, uh, can lead to some pretty unfavorable long term outcomes, and just really detract from the well being and the enjoyment of the client. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I think some people um, uh, are, are probably doing this because, like you said, it's way easier to just say, "Well, I gave you the plan; you either do it or you don't." Like that, that's a lot easier than like truly troubleshooting something. But I also think some some people kind of pick up from other coaches that that's. A successful way to do things and, and, you know, kind of get led astray well, or, there,
1: or they're just modeling behavior, like reproducing behaviors that have been modeled for them in other coaching contexts. Like, yeah, maybe you become a trainer because you had another trainer who took the tough love approach with you. Or you just played sports growing up, and that's the approach that like your your basketball coach or football coach took with you.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, but anyway, I'm I'm way into this segment, and I haven't mentioned one thing about what I was trying to get at. So I, I'm going to move along here. Like I said, we'll we'll definitely have more of a like coaching psychology discussion about self determination theory at some point. Um, but for now, we're going to do this this. Uh, energy audit, right? We need to figure out more about the energy coming in and the energy expenditure on a daily basis. So there are a number of areas to explore here. So first of all, their strength training uh, habits, Um, you know, total energy expenditure during resistance exercise. You had a great research brief on this in the mass research review. It's about six calories per minute. Um, you can do a little bit of calculation. Now, that's their basal energy expenditure plus exercise. That's all lumped together. The total energy expenditure is generally about six calories per minute. Of course, there are variables you can tweak to change that. Um, but, but if you're trying to just kind of sketch out how many calories are we burning in the gym, that's where you can start. Uh, you can crunch some numbers and, and kind of if you want to calculate the additive effect rather than the total effect, you can do that. Uh, But the first thing you want to do is get an idea of how often are we lifting? What do these workouts look like? And, you know, how how much energy are we really burning in the gym on a daily or a weekly basis? And, of course, we should also expect, on average, that about 30% of those calories are going to be compensated for. So when you're trying to figure out how these exercise calories are contributing to total daily energy expenditure – uh, it, it might be that, you know, whatever number you calculate for, ex- you know, lifting related exercise calories per week, you might need to multiply that by like 0.5 or 0.7 to, to get a really good estimate of how much that's actually impacting total daily energy expenditure because of compensation, which we've discussed many times on the show before. Now you want to also look at their cardio program. And and obviously you want to look at frequency, intensity, duration, volume, consistency of of how frequently they're doing these things. But one thing that gets overlooked a lot in these energy audits, aside from the obvious stuff, is modality, right? So when they're doing cardio, is it cardio that's using several large muscle groups? You know, cycling and running are not exactly the same in, in terms of total energy expenditure. When you're running and you have you know, more musculature involved in general, uh, the average person can put a lot more energy into running than they can cycling among workouts that they perceive to be equivalent in terms of difficulty. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is any modality where there's the capacity to, to kind of quote unquote cheat in a way that lowers energy costs. So um, for example, when you become more skilled, at an exercise modality, you're you're not cheating, but your expenditure will go down over time. And and like the best uh, example I can think of for that, when I started swimming for cardio and I literally couldn't swim, I burnt so many calories because all of my motion was wasted, Mm -hmm. right? But if you go from being a terrible swimmer to a great swimmer and you're doing the same distance in your workouts, your energy expenditure is going way down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Uh, exercise economy is linked to skill acquisition. And the more skill you build with a modality, you could be making your exercise more efficient, which is great for performance, but not great for burning energy uh, and burning calories. So uh, another thing is, you know, little opportunities to do something that that's more in line with that idea of cheating. So like when I'm doing laps in the pool, how much am I kicking off the wall versus truly, you know, going through the swimming motion to propel myself. Uh, the biggest one, in my opinion, is handrails. Uh, people on the on the Stairmaster holding onto the handrails, people doing incline uh, treadmill walking, holding onto the handrails has a big impact on reducing energy expenditure. Um, you know, growing up, uh, growing up, it makes it sound like I was like 10.
1: Back in my day,
0: when I was an undergrad student, they, they train you in exercise science as if you're basically going to become like a cardiac rehab uh, yeah. specialist. Uh, th- that's how a lot of the coursework is oriented, at least in, in, in my uh, experience.
1: I know so many things about reading in, in EKG that yeah. I'm never going to use. Exactly. Yeah. But
0: but they used to always warn us, if you're doing a stress test for diagnostic purposes and you're, you're going to be reading that EKG at a very high intensity, if you're letting the participant hold the handles of the treadmill, you could completely botch the test because they might not be able to get up to a sufficient intensity to see some of those key indicators in the EKG. Like they might not physically be able to get their heart to that workload level where you can see some of those key indicators you're looking for. So, I mean, I was on the the StairMaster the other day. I was going to go for a run and it was rainy and I, I don't use the handrails. I did like 15 minutes and felt like I was dying. Like mm-hmm. the Stairmaster should be hard as hell. Uh, and if you're if you're holding onto the handrails, you can really go for like, I mean, I, I was looking next to me and everyone was going for like 40 minutes. I did 15. I was like, you guys are crazy. I'm out. But holding <laughs> the handrails was like the big distinction there. Yeah. Uh, So you got to think about exercise modality
1: on top of those other things. And again, if I told you my best, handrail treadmill story no so uh back in the day god how long ago was this i think i was still in high school um anyway training at this gym and there were you know quite a few other lifters and uh there was this guy who I i think he was just doing cardio after his workout to try to lose weight to drop a weight class or something like that um but anyway, he was uh like he was on a treadmill and just doing kind of like leisurely inclined walking, watching watching the TV that's in front of him. And I shit you not, like he was holding on to the handles of, of the treadmill strapped in. Like he <laughs> like he had he had lifting straps on the handle. And I was like, dude, what what are you doing? He was like, I just deadlifted, like my grip's worn out. And I was just thinking, like, dude, if if you if your grip might become a limiting factor for your ability to walk on a treadmill, you're holding on too damn tight. Like that, that should never be the limiter of of your ability to walk on a treadmill. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's an extreme example, but
0: yeah, yeah. no, but, uh, that, that does remind me one last thing. So when, when you're looking through cardio again, you can do some quick calculations, but you have to factor energy compensation again. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention, I'm not saying that you should all go and get on a stairmaster and not use the handles. You should only do cardio modalities that you feel comfortable doing safely, right? And so like I'm on the stairmaster not using the handles, but my hands are literally hovering over them so that if I lose balance, I can grab them. If you don't trust your balance well enough to do a stairmaster or an incline treadmill walking workout without using the handrails, that's okay. Um, but but you, you you need to make sure you find a modality that is that you feel comfortable doing safely. You know, so if balance is an issue, maybe those aren't the modalities for you, or maybe you still hold the handrails, but you at least have the knowledge. I am pretty significantly reducing my energy expenditure here. Um, now moving on, you want to go th- with this client. You want to talk through their non-exercise activity. So you want to ask them questions, you know, what kind of job do you have? If it's an office job, that's going to be brutal for their total daily energy expenditure. Like sedentary jobs can really put a cap on your energy expenditure unless you're very intentionally getting more activity outside of work. Uh, You want to talk to them about their home life. Um, Obviously, like you, you want to talk about their home life as it pertains to energy expenditure. So, for example, a lot of people gain weight. After college, when they move from a campus setting to a, tradi- a more traditional home setting and they're not walking to every single activity that they do, um, you might uh, move from an urban setting where you walk to the grocery store and you walk to the park and things like that and then move to a rural setting where literally nothing is within a walkable distance. And so, all of a sudden, you're in the car more. So, you want to talk about those aspects of home life and just talk about their leisure time, you know, like… I have noticed that as I get older, uh, now in my fourth decade of life, I don't do the same leisure time activities I used to do that kept my energy expenditure up. Um, and again, this non-exercise activity is still physical activity. So we do have to factor in energy compensation. Moving on to diet. Uh, you want to get an idea of this individual's daily calorie target that they're shooting for, um. One thing you have to ask yourself is is it actually lower than kind of the normal anticipated range? Sometimes it isn't. This is something we've talked about on the show. Sometimes people will come to you and say, "My calorie intake is way too low. It's it's tremendously inappropriate for someone my size." And then you look at their their body size and activity level and you say, "Nah, like that's that's pretty normal." Um, but but there are a lot of people on social media with really strong marketing who are like yeah, all my clients are like 5% body fat and they eat 4,000 calories a day. And if you're not able to do that, there's something wrong with you also buy my book and my coaching, you know, like, so that, that's something that, that, uh, the evidence-based fitness world has to really push against, uh, some people just have, um, people have been given expectations for calorie intake that maybe aren't realistic, um, You want to get an idea after you talk about daily calorie targets, get an idea of consistency and adherence. So any untracked meals, untracked days, binge eating episodes. Uh, One common thing is just kind of taking bites and taking a taste of food from your kids or your partner that you live with. Uh, That's very common. Untracked vegetables, untracked sauces, condiments, oils, cooking sprays. When those things are untracked, but consumed regularly, that can start to drive your calorie intake up, even though you think you're eating far less. Um, and one thing that some people will do is they'll say, man, I switched to all these healthy foods and my body weight is still really stuck. Uh, but sometimes you'll notice when people talk about switching you know, what they consider an unhealthy food to a healthy food, they haven't really moved the needle in terms of actual calorie intake. You know, someone might say, yeah, instead of sugar, I use a lot more honey. But it's, you know, it's still the same amount of total, total uh, caloric intake. Mm-hmm. So you want to go through that. And you also want to go through their diet history. So what's really fascinating is when you can talk through uh, someone's history and figure out, have there ever been times where you had successful attempts with weight loss and you start to understand the circumstances of that successful attempt in the past, the characteristics uh, and you can start to piece together
1: what's missing now, right? So oh, can, can I just add one more thing to your prior list? Sure. Yeah. Uh, e- eating out frequently at restaurants. Oh, good. One. Which like absolutely nothing wrong with that. But one, it, it's very easy to just forget about a lot of the things you eat at a restaurant. Like, hey, I, I went to a Mexican restaurant. I got a burrito and a margarita. Okay. Like I remember that well, did they put chips and salsa on the table? Oh, yeah, yeah. I also ate, like, four baskets of chips, you know? Um, or, uh, you know, you remember the big thing you got and there was an appetizer for the table, and like you said, untracked bites. Like, eh, maybe I had, like, one or two little bites of the appetizer. And uh, unless... I I was going to say unless the restaurant posts its its calorie information online, even if it does, that's, that's a crapshoot. Um... I don't think that, uh, that's actually strictly enforced. Like, I don't think restaurants are actually out here getting in trouble if they're, uh, if the calories of, of the foods they have posted are lower than what's in the actual dish. But yeah, I, you know, nothing wrong with eating out at restaurants, but I wouldn't count that the same as like untracked meals, as you mentioned, but uh, if you are eating out at restaurants pretty frequently, at minimum, there, there's a pretty big question mark because, um, yeah, you, you you don't actually know how much total food it is. You don't know how much fat was added in the preparation. There are probably a few little things that you eat throughout a meal that you just don't think about after the meal is over. Uh, so, yeah, re- eating out frequently at restaurants is, is a, a, at least another thing to take inventory of.
0: Yeah, that's a very, a very good addition. Um, but yeah, the, the, the next one I was talking about diet history, it can be really informative if you compare and contrast, like what is different about this current unsuccessful weight loss attempt when we compare it to past very successful weight loss attempts. And sometimes you'll see. Someone uh, switched to a sedentary job from a more active job, they moved to a less walkable area, Uh, you know, they got married and had kids, and they're not sleeping as well, and they're kind of taking bites of food from their family. Uh, you know, they stop pursuing physically active leisure time activities because they're busier with their family responsibilities. There's a long list of things that can change that make a really big difference. Uh, And then, of course, when talking about diet history, you want to get an idea of whether or not this person, like some people have been really aggressively restricting for a very, very long time. And sometimes those are cases where you do see some fairly substantial genuine metabolic adaptation happening and along those lines the final thing you want to talk through with your energy audit is symptoms of low energy availability so uh when someone has very low energy availability and they're they're really likely to have metabolic adaptation there's usually some signs of that you know hunger uh being lethargic having uh kind of an increase in injury rate recently with their training Uh, obviously disruption of menstrual cycle, low libido, uh, impaired sleep quality. Uh, Obviously, if they have hormone information, if you start to see that, you know, thyroid hormones or sex hormones are getting out of whack, those can be indicators that we're seeing uh, the physiological signs of really, you know, fairly substantial energy restriction. So, that was a long list. That's a lot of stuff to talk through. This usually takes a full hour without without question and sometimes even longer. Um, but the reason that we ask so many detailed questions is because we are searching for maybe two to 300 calories per day worth of, of metabolic adaptation, if it exists. But in order to find that, we have to rule out all other potential sources of inaccurate tracking or just improper estimation of energy in or energy out um so w- when I run into a situation where we do this energy audit and we see that yeah we're we're looking at a discrepancy of like 600 calories that we can't find, that usually is is a suggestion to me that we're talking about some missing calories that are not attributable to metabolic adaptation like, true metabolic adaptation in most cases, you're going to see that we're talking about a magnitude of up to 200, maybe 300 calories per day, um, kind of at the higher end of what you regularly see. Um, So that's actually good news. Like if you can find some of these calories and you don't have to say that all of it is true physiological adaptation, that's terrific because it's way easier to resolve what is basically an accounting issue versus resolving physiology issues like if you can say oh actually yeah i've been eating 400 more calories than i thought that that's an easy solution that that we can then troubleshoot so as you're going through this you've collected this information you want to go through some different scenarios that will lead you to tentative conclusions as you're reviewing so like when i see these scenarios here's the first place my brain goes and and then of course it's a conversation and you probe deeper but if i see someone with this stalled weight loss and they've got some untracked meals or days or frequent binges or as you added very regular restaurant eating uh, m- my concern is that we, we probably just aren't getting a good estimate of our calorie intake you know um the fact that we have these untracked days or meals we've got these binging episodes we've got a lot of uh restaurant prepared meals that makes me think we might have an issue with accuracy of nutrition tracking now if i see someone with stalled weight loss and there are just absolutely no symptoms of low energy availability i'm thinking along the same lines we might have an issue with dietary adherence or we might just have an issue with the accuracy of dietary tracking uh, because we're we're thinking we're consuming this really low calorie intake, but we're not showing any of the signs of like substantial energy restriction, Uh, which again is good. We can troubleshoot and get to the bottom of that. If I see someone who has stalled weight loss with a very cardio heavy approach, so they're leaning very much on cardio for weight loss. The biggest issue there could be modality selection. Like we talked about, it could be significant energy compensation, which, which is observed from time to time. Uh, It's also possible that the individual has a really major hunger response to high amounts of cardio, which you do see a lot of variability from person to person there. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, if I see this stalled weight loss with a very low cardio or no cardio approach, my first thought is we probably have very low daily energy expenditure. We might want to work in either structured cardio or other less structured physical activity to try to just move the needle for total daily energy expenditure. Uh, and kind of a, a fringe benefit of doing that is sometimes people actually uh, kind of paradoxically have increased hunger due to low physical activity. So, so you can sometimes add a little bit of cardio and help people regulate their appetite and hunger a little bit better. Um, but like I said, some people... They go too high with the cardio and then the hunger gets gets really excessive. So you want to try to thread the needle there and listen to the individual's experience. Um, Sometimes you'll see stalled weight loss that very clearly coincides with a major life change, new job, new house, new baby, things like that. Issues there could relate to just low physical activity, low energy expenditure. Uh, Also, anything that disrupts your sleep to a significant degree can really alter your hunger and reward responses, so you'll seek out more uh, hedonic eating opportunities. A lot of times, calorie increase will or calorie intake will increase in a way that is not truly intentional or volitional. So that's something to keep an eye out for. And then, of course, if I see someone with stalled weight loss who has very clear signs of low energy availability, that usually is an indicator we're probably talking about at least some degree of of Legit metabolic adaptation here. So that's kind of the troubleshooting process. And you start kind of putting putting things together and getting an idea of where do we have to dig deeper to figure out how to account for these different calories. And then, you know, what's the next move? We basically have three different options here. Um, we can try to reestablish adherence and consistency and accuracy with tracking uh, and basically do a maintenance phase. And what we're trying to do there is re-establish that consistency, improve any inaccuracies in our tracking, and get a really great idea of what is the calorie intake where I really effectively maintain my body weight? And it's there's twofold benefits. It's a little bit of a psychological break from intense dieting, and it also gives us a very valuable number. If you know your total daily energy expenditure, you are empowered to move forward with greater confidence when you're setting a weight loss goal. Uh, you know the numbers that you're working with at that point. Option two is you can still address whatever issue seems to be present, but try to keep pushing forward uh, with that weight loss attempt that's currently in process. So uh, rather than kind of pressing pause and maintaining and identifying total daily energy expenditure, you go through and you say, okay, our best guess is that we've been, uh, you know, we've got an estimation error of approximately this many calories. So let's drop our calorie target to this number and keep pushing forward. So, so there is the opportunity to do that. Um, and so, you want to just go and address, like, maybe you switch your cardio modality, maybe you change your cardio volume, you work on a different step count goal. There's a lot of different ways to address the issues that were identified in the audit and keep pushing forward without a maintenance phase. And then option three, you could, uh, you know, maybe try something like reverse dieting if it looks like you, know, you could do a diet break or reverse dieting if it looks like there's. Some really substantial metabolic adaptation, and the prospect of pushing forward seems to be unsustainable. And I don't want to get into the diet break and reverse dieting stuff because we've already covered that in a lot of depth on the show previously. But um, in any case, you know, what we're trying to do here is. Ask questions, listen, identify areas where we might have inaccuracies in terms of energy intake and energy consumption, and then just recalibrating the process to figure out how we push forward. And unfortunately, one situation you might run into is as I alluded to in my example about uh, tough love and the alternate way you can frame that news. Sometimes you do run into a situation where a person's ideal physique. Is not compatible with what they consider to be a sustainable lifestyle and in that situation it's not an easy solution but I I think sometimes you have to just sit down and talk through kind of a cost-benefit analysis of what if we aim for this level of leanness versus that level you know how do we find a way to achieve your goal while also having a lifestyle that you feel comfortable with and you know Sometimes that involves recalibrating the goal. Sometimes it involves framing the goal as more transient in nature. So someone might say, I can't sustain this lifestyle that is required to get to 6% body fat. You say, okay. Let's talk about when we want to be 6% body fat and for how long and kind of work back from there with more of a calendar approach of when we do the less sustainable techniques and when we do the more sustainable techniques and how we manage body composition. It's almost like a periodization for your leanness over the course of a one-year schedule. So there's a lot of options for how you navigate that conversation, but sometimes you will find that we need to recalibrate expectations for... You know, what is uh, my ideal physique that is also compatible with the way I want to live and the way I want to feel each day? So there's a lot that goes into that process of the energy audit and then the ultimate conclusions of of where you go from there. But I I get a lot of questions of, you know, someone presents with suspected metabolic adaptation that appears to be extreme in magnitude. What do you do? Mm -hmm. I do that. know we go through that process start to finish and uh yeah that's all i got we are we're running very very long yeah that's obvious uh do you want to do your research roundup or do you want to save that for a later time i'm comfortable with either because i know that i just stole the entire show
1: well I wouldn't phrase it like that. You uh, took up a lot of time on the show. Whether or not you stole the show, <laughs> that might be a touch more self-congratulatory than, I, than I'm comfortable with.
0: We'll see in the in the comments how people <laughs> feel.
1: Uh, no, that that's totally fine. My my feats of strength also ran long. Um, yeah, we we can we can push my segment back.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely we'll start out with that one next time around and make sure that we uh we'll, we'll give you a chance to steal the show and see yeah, if you Yeah, ever... I mean
1: I it's it's no big deal. I don't care. Uh I took time out of my valuable vacation to prepare this segment. Um But yeah, who who cares? My time my time doesn't matter. Uh I'm just the guest here who yeah. who gives a shit about That's a good point. I anything that. I do or anything I care about
0: Yeah, I don't remember if I apologize, but if I do, (laughs) if I did, I want to retract that now that you put it that way. Um, Now, to play us out, uh, Greg, are you familiar with football, American football? I've heard of it. So there's the National Football League, um, and they have a combine every year where all of the promising um, prospects for the upcoming NFL draft— uh, run through a battery of uh, fitness tests uh, and a variety of other tests as well. Basically, the NFL teams want to figure out everything they can figure out about uh, the athletes who are going to be entering the upcoming draft. Um, and there were some numbers that just cannot be ignored, and we, we simply must acknowledge them. So all of this information is coming from Cbsports.com. And I focused on the forty-yard dash. Um, so forty yards is thirty-six point six meters, roughly, and it is kind of the single speed metric that American football organizations are really enamored with. Um, the football field is a hundred yards, but you know the forty-yard dash is kind of the the prime number, especially for the skill positions: receivers, running backs, defensive backs. Uh, but they have everybody run it, and it gets a lot of attention. So the first thing that caught my eye was uh, a pair of wide receivers from Ohio State. Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave both ran under a 4.4-second 4. 4 40-yard dash. So Garrett Wilson came in at 4.38 seconds, Olave at 4.39. That was his official time. His unofficial time was like 4.26 and I saw that on Twitter, and I was like, "What?" Uh, but they did correct it after the fact. Um, but anyway, I saw those two numbers, and it made my it made me sad. I was like, "We Ohio State should have won at least sixteen games last year." And I know you can only win fifteen, but that honestly kind of broke my heart.
1: Well, and, uh, and then when both of them don't play in the bowl game, and you just see how good Jackson Smith and Jigba is when he has the chance to be the number one target. Yeah. I mean, Ohio State had a very good season they by did. most program standards. Uh but yeah, you you see that and you're like, ah, should have been so much more.
0: Yeah. Uh and dude, Marvin Harrison Jr. as well. Uh yeah. another upcoming receiver. So the future's bright, but man, I saw that and I was like, ah, we you you just think we we could have done more with it. Uh some really crazy speed. Uh Taequann Thornton and Kalon Barnes. Um They are both out of Baylor. Uh, One is a wide receiver, the other a cornerback, a defensive back. They both ran under a 4-3, so 4.28 and 4.29 seconds. That is absolutely crazy. When you start talking about getting below 4.3 seconds, you're talking about the all-time elite combine performances for the 40-yard dash. So that is unbelievable without any qualification whatsoever. Uh, now getting into the really interesting stuff that I find even more impressive because um, we'll throw in some qualifiers here that are almost hard to believe. So there were eight athletes categorized as edge rushers who ran a 4.58 or below. Uh, and so these are these are like defensive ends. So like for example, Amari Barno uh, from Virginia Tech ran a 4.36. He's listed at 245 pounds. That's, that is
1: that's outrageous.
0: Yeah, so he he's he's almost two fifty, which is like 113 kilograms. Running a 4.36 just simply doesn't make sense. I understand that physics exists, but not in a world where that happens.
1: It 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 almost makes you feel for quarterbacks. And like it makes sense why there are so many more mobile quarterbacks now. You can't you can't just shift around in the pocket a little bit and get out of the way of that. Yeah,
0: you don't see a lot of Drew Bledsoe's anymore. Yeah, you, know, you got to be a little quicker than that these days. Um, now, here here's a crazy stat: uh, twelve linemen. So I, I don't think they included edge rushers as linemen here. So we're talking interior linemen and offensive linemen. Twelve of them broke the five second barrier, uh, which you think you know five seconds after the numbers we've discussed might not sound that impressive but we're talking about people who weigh a lot and rarely have to cover 40 yards in a play. so mm-hmm. it's it's not a, an area where they specialize uh, except for the couple months leading up to the draft. Um, but here are two numbers that are just insane. Devontae Wyatt from Georgia ran 4.77 at a body weight of 315 pounds or 143 kilograms it's the amount of force that that person is putting through the ground with each stride is is absolutely it's hard to wrap your head around it's
1: preposterous it
0: is and you might be thinking that's the craziest thing that I'm gonna tell you but it's actually not Um, Jordan Davis his teammate so bear in mind if you're on the other team both of these men are running at you at the same time. There's two of them. Yes. Yeah. So his teammate Jordan Davis ran a 4.78 40 yard dash at a weight of 341 pounds or 155 kilograms. There's no there's no reason that someone that large should be able to move that fast. Yeah,
1: that's completely unconscionable.
0: So realistically, so like if you're not a particularly mobile quarterback. You might be running in the four sevens, you know like that that's maybe about where you're at so if you you're a quarterback on the other team, uh you have almost seven hundred pounds <laughs> worth of these two gentlemen chasing you with that type of speed that is not a place that I'd like to be, and that might have something to do with why Georgia won the championship last year yeah
1: I, I'm pretty sure both of those guys have faster forty times than Patrick Mahomes who, you know, he's no Lamar Jackson, but he's a he's a perfectly adequate scrambler when he needs to get out of the pocket and, and get a first down. But yeah, both both of these guys are faster than him. Yeah. Yeah,
0: so it, it's incredible. I, I, I don't like watch the combine every year, but I do go into the data afterwards and just say, okay, surprise me again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, let's see what we've got. And uh, this year was no exception. People really put on quite a performance. So congratulations to all those athletes for a terrific combine performance. And I hope that they have good fortune when it comes to the draft coming up. All right. So that does it for this episode. Um, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that you'll join us next week where Greg is going to have, uh, the floor will be yours. I-, I, I can't wait to see what you have in store for us. So Thanks as always, and we will see you in one week. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You could sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.